Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Brent Phillips, your guest host. Normally, I work behind the scenes managing and recording our interviews, but today I'm in New York City, and I'm going to interview a very special guest for us, Colin Coop, a design partner with the celebrated architectural firm Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, or SOM. Welcome, Colin. Good to be here. I mentioned that my father's architecture professor, and I spent a lot of my youth in SOM's office in San Francisco. It's so cool to be here. I just, I love it. So last year, we focused some interviews around education, and we spoke with Samir Maskey from Fuse Machines here in New York City, which specializes in building AI schools and educational programs around the AI Education for All model. We also spoke with Stefania Druga from Cognomates, an AI education platform for building games programming games, programming robots, and training AI models. We're here speaking with Colin to follow up an interview we just did with Daniel Huttenmacher, the inaugural dean of MIT's new Schwarzman College of Computing, and a conversation we had with Daniel on the future of AI education and architecture's role in not only housing tomorrow's computer science programs, but in inspiring interest in humanitarian applications for artificial intelligence. So Colin, SOM has been working across the educational sector, designing some of the most celebrated campuses and campus buildings around the world, like Cornell University's Roosevelt Island campus. So SOM is shaping the future of AI education, in a sense. We'd love to hear about the future of education from your vantage point. But before we get started, for folks who aren't familiar with architecture or SOM, could you introduce yourself and tell us about SOM and some of the buildings that you've designed? and about your design philosophy. Sure. Sorry for the long intro, but <laughs> we'd love to hear about no, all that. Like I said, it's great to be here. And I think it's an important conversation, how to utilize this technology in a way that's more broad and inclusive and engaging a full set of disciplines that I think at the moment are sitting on the sidelines when it talks about machine learning, AI, things like that. But the story of, I'll start with the story of SOM and then I can talk about my role here. But SOM is, you know, one of the preeminent multi-generational design collectives founded in 1936, certainly widely associated with a series of projects in the post-war years that sort of came to define first America's emergence out of World War II and the subsequent sort of industrialization of the country. So, you know, projects like Lever House headquarters here in New York, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Beinecke Library at Yale University, a slew of, you know, sort of headquarter projects, including a large number of increasingly tall skyscrapers, so Hancock Tower in Chicago, now called Willis Tower in Chicago. And then in the, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s, SOM kind of became a much more global presence and expanded outward from there, often working on some of the most complex and large-scale projects in the world. So the planning and ultimate realization of Canary Wharf as a precinct in London. Yeah, I visited that in yeah. London. I spoke at a conference there and it's such a beautiful project. It's so cool to think of, you know, the older building and repurposing these buildings. And, yeah. And I see behind you a hard hat. So I just, it's just cool what you're doing. You know, you're designing these huge, amazing buildings and the engineering of it, but you, you're actually out there in the field and 
but it's an interesting profession, architecture, because it brings together both sophisticated computers in the world and art apps here. And yeah, I feel very lucky to do what I love every day. And the beauty of being an architect, I think, is having the ability to sort of understand the world through your work, sit across the table and be in dialogue with an AI researcher, a doctor, an educator, a developer, uh, anybody who's seeking to sort of make physical something about the world in physical form. And, and that, that is, I think, something that I find with other academics and thinkers and people that I have that they don't get to have, which is that at the end of the day, you leave something behind, you leave a physical artifact in the form of a building behind. And that's a really pleasurable experience. It's amazing. And I can't wait to see MIT's new uh, Schwarzman College of Computing building. And I understand that you guys worked on that. And, you know, you routinely work with your clients on futuristic buildings, educational buildings. And what's it like iterating through the design process with a with client, especially educational project? And again, a, a building that will be around for 100 years, maybe. And it's quite a responsibility to think about what education will look like in 20, 50 years. Yeah. You aspire to create things that last a century or more when you're doing architecture, which is interesting, particularly on something like the College of Computing, because you're talking to people who in many ways are thinking in terms of 18 to 24 months, you know, the cycle of constant change in technology which is very much at odds with an architectural cycle, which wants to be you know, as close to infinite as That's possible. That's so true. And I think the other thing that is interesting, you asked about process. I have a kind of imperfect distinction for architects, which is that I think there's a group of architects that are interested in language, architectural language, expression of their idea through a consistent language. And then I think there's a group of architects that are interested in ideas. And they start with the idea, and then they find the language. And I probably put myself in the latter category, which is to say that I don't start a project with a kind of predetermined expression. And that's no judgment against people who do that, because there's many architects I admire who do do that. But when I start, I do think there's an idea that you're trying to express. And that idea has to come out of a pretty deep dialogue with a client or a group of clients. And it takes months and sometimes years to find the final expression of the architecture. So it's a very... So you don't believe, as Michelangelo did, about you have a piece of stone in front of you and there's something that lives in it. I like your idea that anything is inside that stone, isn't there? Yeah, I think you could give that stone to artists over the centuries and get radically different masterpieces from each of them. And I think that's true of architecture as well. Although you are, I think, to be a good architect, you have to be grounded in, in climate. You have to be grounded in, in the context of the site, the immediacy of the functional use that's intended, and the culture of the place. And I think those things do, they are like both constraints that are placed on you as a designer, but they're also kind of stimulations. They stimulate a kind of form of creativity. And I think that process, as long as you don't go in, I think, with a predisposition of what the end result is, and you leave yourself open to the possibilities, usually that process will yield a compelling outcome. What's in store for the uh, educational campuses of the future? You know, you speak with students about what they need or want, but these are students that'll be gone in four or five, ten years. And I'm sure they bring some interesting input to the table, but I'm sure you have your own ideas about the future of education and educational spaces. 
over the last several years, buildings have had, I guess they've had an open floor plan and long benches and things like that. But maybe we'll go back to cubicles or maybe. I think that we're coming out of the pandemic, fingers crossed, sometime soon here. And it's already, you know, kind of questioned, let's say, the last 25 years of planning and architecture in the form of the idea of the free plan, the open plan, the notion of the flexibility that's inherent to that, you know, that you do come up against the realities of of noise, of air travel, of all those things. And I think in alignment with the pandemic is also this question of climate change and the impending need for our profession to sort of reset fundamentally our relationship with carbon in a place that is at a minimum neutral and we hope, you know, carbon negative. So when I think about like what is the education campuses of the future look like, a lot of it will look like today because we shouldn't touch the carbon that's already in place. And we should be very careful about tearing down before we build new. And if we do choose to do that, we should have a very good reason for it. And we should build in ways that are more sustainable, more resilient than we have in the past. And I think that's a new, not new, but new idea in the sense that most modernists really fundamentally believed in the creation of idealized cities that required a tremendous amount of erasure. And I think that contemporary expressions of architecture need to resolve the idea of conservation, the idea of, of reuse as the sort of central plank of what they do. So I like that. It's an interesting trend to think about this sort of organic architecture that's in harmony with the world, with Mother Nature, with whatever you want to call it, the, the world around us and thinking about the future. And Yeah, and I think that education campuses can be leaders at that because many of them have a tremendous amount of history to preserve and reuse. And those buildings have a pride of place on campus already and, and they're integral to the education experience of previous generations and they will be for future generations. But you're also going to see a tremendous amount of invisible for lack of a better word, terraforming. I mean, we're working with Princeton University right now on their East Campus and Lake Campus, and it's largely an outgrowth of athletic fields and other things like that. But what you don't see underground is these huge invisible geothermal systems, these huge stormwater retention systems. And then above ground, what you see are these massive photovoltaic arrays that are being you know, spread out. And that's because they are using the land that they have to make the rest of their campus carbon neutral by the, the middle of the century. And I do think you're going to see a lot of that, which is transforming the landscapes of campuses into productive landscapes, finding ways for an individual site on an education campus like a sports field to do six things at once, be a sports field, but also be a sponge for rainwater events and also be invisible generators of energy. This is what I think most of the campuses of the 21st century are going to have to do to sort of balance that equation. But I want to come back to what you were originally asking about, which is really more about like what the experience of and, learning will be. Yeah, and before you get started, I just want to say that's amazing. You just painted a, a, an amazing picture for us of the future, and I, uh, I wouldn't have envisioned that, but it seems so clear. Yeah, yeah. It, I think we have, in the last decade or so, figured out a lot of like what the what the ingredients are, let's say, to a better and more brighter and more sustainable future. And there are technologies like building technologies like 
mass timber and the increased use of organic materials that allow even new buildings to be much more low carbon or zero carbon in both their operational carbon and their embodied carbon. So the future in that sense is hopeful. I'm a, a, by nature, I'm an optimist. I think SOM is a believer in the adoption of technology and engineering to solve problems like this. And I think that we, we have a roadmap. It's just a matter of whether we, as a civilization, have the will to follow through, which is an open question. That's a good point. You know, we've done a lot of interviews, uh, 38 already today, on um, humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence and on humanitarian operations and what humanitarian actors can bring to AI developers. And it's true, there's, there's a lot of talk about will and do we as humanity have the will to, to make these steps? So, yeah. you know, thank you for, again for pointing this out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I sense it in the profession and now I see it increasingly in the client. And that's important. But also the bottom line is, I think, leveling out too in the sense that people understand the cost of not doing this relative to the cost of doing it right. And there's a clear choice there. And, and there's really only one answer, which is to, to address this forthrightly in the design work that we do now. You were going to talk about um, the future of AI education. I, I made an observation when I came in here is, um, you know, when I did spend time in SOM's office in San Francisco, I remember it was a, a maze of corridors and drawing tables. drawing tables and people hard at work and yeah. it was um, very close quarters and dynamic environment but it's more open here and I, I think it's beautiful and maybe part of that is technology and when I was first studying computer-aided design was fairly new and I in terms of the future and the future of education the future of computer science we have these great tools around us that are maybe opening up our environment around us and uh, you know, it looks like you're doing that here. And, you know, we could talk about how you're leveraging technology and in the same way that students will be leveraging technology. And I think you're keeping pace with changes here. I think let's use the office, the two offices you mentioned as a comparison to the influence, I think, of technology. And we'll get to how AI figures in that. And so let's say an architecture studio from 20, 30, 40 years ago, and then this new office we're sitting in at Federal Trade Center for SOM, which my partner Chris Cooper designed. And the old office was a large drawing studio, essentially a large open room where people were cramped together. You had drawing tables, T-squares, May lines, drawing. And the act was a physical act with a pen or pencil of expressing in two dimensions what someone should use, you know, almost like an instruction manual for realizing a three-dimensional form. And the game was to figure out how few drawings you could create to communicate the intent to a set of people, builders, construction workers, who would then go out and realize it. And they were quite good at that in those early years. You know, the drawing set for Lever House, one of SOM's masterpieces, is like 15 to 20 sheets. It's tiny. And they were able to sort of communicate effectively. The computer, ironically, when it came into use widely in the design and engineering and construction professions resulted in, in these massive reams of paper, these huge drawing sets where you could communicate, you could work more efficiently, so you communicated more, more specificity. I'm not sure the buildings got better. And you would have thousands and thousands of sheets and specification books that would tell you everything. And it's also evidence of the increased responsibility of the architect. You weren't just picking materials, you also had to like define 
the performance of those materials, the fire codes of materials, the structural qualities, the all these other things. So responsibility came complex became complexity in documentation. And now I look at Revit models, which is building information modeling, where you're essentially building a three-dimensional virtual representation, a digital twin of the final building. And I hope what we're getting back to is actually to get rid of that ex excess complexity and go back to something quite simple, which is just to make a simulation of a real thing. And that can be used not only to create the real thing by, by builders, but then that simulation lives on afterwards and clients use that to optimize their energy consumption and predict how the building could be changed and adapted over time. And so you have that ability to sort of vacillate back and forth between the virtual model and the physical thing that you're living in. And our office today is a representation of that. You don't see any large drawing tables. And certainly we have plenty of people working hard on, on visualizing these things, but it's a more screen-based reality. But we still care about the physical thing. So we have huge samples and models and you know our material library is filled with um, it's very peaceful here. It's, and, and, um, and I saw the library. It's just you know it, it inspires work and inspires collaboration. And yeah. Daniel Huttenlocker made the point that um We've kind of gone all gone remote during the pandemic, but he pointed out that the tough decisions in the world really necessitate people coming together in the physical world. Yes, hybrid is real. You can get things done remotely, even as an architect doing really large things with huge models that require processing speed and power and things like that. But particularly with clients, decisions are made through a long dialogue. We talked about this earlier, and it's, it's not as effective on Zoom. And I'm a big believer that we can do a lot on Zoom, but that is one thing that I think it's very hard to do. And this office is intentionally set up, I think, to be tranquil, to be meditative, because we're back at that point where we're not making the perfect straight line with a main line anymore, but we are finding a way to sort of express an idea as purely and simply and succinctly as possible. That's so architectural, <laughs> the architectural idea of form and function. And this is the uh, idealization, the optimization in a form and function, would you say, in the computer age? Yes, we're certainly functionalists here at SOM. And we're certainly people, you know, we, we're not just architects, we're engineers, we're planners, we're interdisciplinary. And we all focus on efficiency as a core idea at SOM. Like, how do you find the most direct way to express yourself? And I think AI is only going to sort of accelerate that process. We already see that in some of our young designers bringing into work ideas that they learn at places like MIT, which has an excellent school of architecture, where they're using generative algorithms to do urban planning now instead of code and source books. They are able to sort of develop parametric models, which say, okay, we need to build this much area over this much acreage, and we care about travel distance, walking distance, we care about building density near mass transit stations, we care about sunlight reaching every window, but we also have these basic shapes and forms that are the most profitable because they don't have too much enclosure. You can embed all that in, in AI now, and it can yield you know, an infinite number of variations, and then it, based on your criteria, can select architectural forms that you never would have thought up before. And it's not that it's designing, it's just that it's the most powerful tool and it's the most efficient tool that you can use. 
And it's also iterative in a way that I think both not only clients, but communities would appreciate because communities would find a way of being able to balance harmoniously a lot of competing interests, which really is what architecture is. It's amazing. I was picturing a, an iPad or a virtual assistant here on the conference table, and we're just more, maybe we're just painters where we, we have this third, third person in the room who will ask these questions to and who will offer us some ideas and will make the specifications over a cup of coffee and do all this amazing technical work. It'll do it for us, you know, engineer it and try out different models. This is the future of AI and technology where we're just uh, creators, you know. I think there's a, it's probably decades out, maybe I'm being too limited in my thinking, but I do think there is a, a future out there that is the one that you speak of where a tremendous amount of the grunt work and the sort of drudgery of creation is simplified with kind of a powerfully enhanced design process that really does rely on technology to sort of bridge a lot of gaps right now that we really just through elbow grease and kind of repetition solve. I absolutely think that's true. And I, you know, I'm a big supporter of Dan's vision, having talked to him at length about it, but and MIT's vision in general, I shouldn't just attribute it to Dan, but the, the idea of the College of Computing, which is fundamentally trying to say that like the future of AI is not the province of computer sciences alone, but it is the province of all humanity. And we need to sort of recenter and acknowledge that AI and machine learning, this is the air we breathe. This is the water we swim in. You, if you want to be an architect or a doctor or an art historian, you have to be completely proficient in these tools the same way you have to speak your native tongue, whether that's English or something else, to be an architect or anyone else. You don't go to school and get a degree in English to be an architect. You go and it's just the basis of education. I think that's AI. And I think that has to be the way that designers are taught increasingly is to just make it a central feature of your education from day one. That's so true. I can see that. It's amazing where we're headed. I'm excited to be here today and part of all of this. I think all of you are and all of your staff. And uh, I was just thinking back to MIT and that it's true, they have an amazing architectural school. And I was looking at some of the, they had an exhibition of, of models of uh, homes for the poor and thinking about architecture and how can you leverage locally sourced materials to build buildings and things like that. But, but you're right, the architects of the future, the students of the future who are proficient in artificial intelligence and machine learning, imagine the, the buildings they'll design for the poor and maybe they'll solve poverty and lack of shelter, the sustainable development goals. They'll work on these and apply there. Yeah, and I think that's the important, you've made a connection to the third you know, sort of the element here, we talked about the pandemic and health and things like that. We talked about climate change. Then you have this question of social justice and equity. And like all powerful tools, you can use it in any manner you see fit. I would hope that by centering it in one's education and having a humanist point of view, when you teach these tools to people, how to use them, how to advance them, that you do kind of connect the dot between the application of science and the benefit, the benefit to a broad group of people, not a select group of people, a benefit to the larger climate and the environment. 
I, I think we would be able to address questions of homelessness, lack of shelter, questions of you know like climate change, environmental justice, uh, disadvantaged communities, communities proportion disproportionately affected by climate change and flooding and things like that. AI could easily help us advance more quickly towards a better resolution of those issues if we were to use it that way. But again, it comes back to this question of will, which is like, what are we going to choose to use these tools to do? Which is not something that technology in itself can solve. It's only something that we as a, as a culture and a society can solve. That's a good point. I was just thinking also that we have, you know, you, you work for clients and your clients are these large universities. And in a sense, uh, you know, a university is a gatekeeper and there's these amazing things that we as humanity need to do. and it, in a sense, we, you know, you have to work through your clients first in order to realize these things. And what's your experience working with clients and sensitizing them to these things? And I think that you go through a process, you get interviewed, there's an RFP, a request for a proposal, you put your fees in, your design fees, all these other things. And I find oftentimes that these interviews are very aspirational, and which is excellent. And you talk about these very things that you and I are talking about. And then, you know, let's say you get the job, there is a, a, you know, a kind of cold shower moment where there is a budget, there is a schedule, there is a, an area program, there is a set of end users. And I think most people, even the most brilliant researchers that I have ever had a chance to talk about, they often are like just... I just want the lights to work. I just want the outlet to be in the right place. I just want the desk height to be here and this chair is uncomfortable. And you know, and I think there's a there's an aspect of creature comfort that we all ascribe to when it comes to like what we're designing for ourselves, for our own homes, things like that. And that's super important. I'm not dismissing that because that's we all need that in our lives. We need space that supports our life, our existence, our creative endeavors. And so when you work with education clients in particular, that's probably what I just described there is probably 90% of the conversations I'm having. There's a 10% that's about those aspirational things, but it's getting the expression of the building right. And not only right for those people, but for the next people, because the end users, and I say this lovingly as an architect who often speaks with them, they're super opinionated, about what works for them in their particular sphere of influence, their lab, their office, their classroom. And then, you know, they leave, they take a new job, they retire, whatever. And the next person comes along and they're like, why is this outlet here? Or why, you know, just the basic things. And so as an architect, you're constantly trying to resolve the near-term desires of the people who intend to use it immediately with this imagined future user 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And if you really think about that, I mean, we have research buildings that get adapted into office buildings. I've, I've worked on, a, on renovating an office building into an apartment building. Like the, the end use, the final end use is completely open-ended. And so how do you balance like that near-term expression that everyone cares about without making the building essentially obsolete because it is so idiosyncratically 
resolved to the taste of a small group of people in a near-term use that in the long-term it's not a useful building. And that's like the trick of, I think, of being a functionalist architect is like you can't lose sight of that long-term use. Airports are a great example of this. Like how many airports were perfectly designed for the 1960s, 70s, 80s? The entire act of flying changed so transformatively, these buildings were immediately obsolete. That's a good point. What's that airport, Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris? Yeah. You know, it's just such an interesting design. It's true. Is it relevant today or is it going to be more relevant tomorrow or in this kind of a science fiction era? Yeah, the TWA terminal here at JFK, beautiful masterwork by Aero Saarinen. I'd love to go visit to it. What is it now? It is currently essentially a hotel lobby and a restaurant. It is not an airport anymore because it almost immediately didn't work. I was thinking about Frank Lloyd Wright's, uh, what's that, the hotel, the Tokyo Hotel, or yes. the one that the, didn't um, exist? Imperial. Uh, Imperial Hotel. Yeah. Yeah, imagine that. And we were talking earlier, uh, before we started, about architecture of the future and campuses of the future and flying uh, cars and things like that. Is, is the campus of the future going to have a pad on the roof for, for like a, a Jetsons-style uh, commuter system or... I think with all like drone-based technology or all those things, it's going to be about our appetite for it, for things whirring around in the air around us. Obviously, the technology is there, easily scalable to a pretty widespread use. I think at the moment, there's not that appetite within the city to live in that particular way, although there's certainly great arguments for very remote communities and how you service them and things like that. So that one to me... I think we'll find a, a media, a healthy ground where we balance that and incorporate that. All these sort of transit systems, the, the ability to just move people or objects around, whether it's drones or the Hyperloop or all those things, will find a balance is my answer. But a lot of technologies get adopted and there's usually a long period of uncomfortable adoption of technology, you know, the, the early years of air travel, or even you look at early rail stations being inserted into historic city cores and the, and the real damage that they did. It takes a while to figure out how to incorporate it into the life of the city. This is a good point to just thinking about technology in general and how do we adapt to the changing time around us architecturally and in other ways. It's such a great interview. I'm glad we've had the time to talk to you. And we like to finish our interviews, and we, uh, we ask our guests to envision a, a futuristic AI application and what they would love to see. But before we ask this great science fiction question, will we see buildings designed by SOM on the moon? <laughs> yes. So one of my research projects is with the European Space Agency um, habitation on the moon. That habitation on the moon is going to happen in the near term. There's, there's enough will both in the private sector and the public sector. I fully intend to get an SOM project on the moon. Absolutely. I think it's eminently doable. We just need someone with a lot of money to give us yeah. to give us a, a well, nice contract to design it. I, I don't know if you read in the newspaper, Elon Musk, you know, they're pushing hard to uh, get their spaceship program, get the engines built off the ground and yep. they're projecting a they need to fly, what, two flights a week or something like that? And imagine the amount of materials to, to shoot upwards. And you know, you're right. It, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's, you know, and that part is the hardest part of it all, honestly, is the payload, how to fit the payload in the fairing on the rocket, get it into space. You talked about efficiency before. Every ounce of matter that you put 
into the design of the actual habitat has to be scrutinized because you have to get it off the planet and into space. Once you're into space, it gets easier. Delivering it, once you install it on the surface of the moon, it gets easier. Yeah. But that first step is actually the hardest one. Do you think architecture in space is, you know, in the same way that the astronaut program back in the 60s inspired products like Tang, do you think architecture in space is going to influence architecture on the Earth in terms of design and aesthetics? Undoubtedly. It, it's not only in visible ways like that, but it's also in, in these really powerful ways. Like I, I think you could argue that we wouldn't fully comprehend the, the true nature of the climate crisis on this planet if it wasn't for the space program and the advancements that NASA in satellite technology that allowed us to observe ourselves from a distance and realize what was happening. So uh, there's going to be any number of things like that, not only material advancements, systems advancements in terms of like, if you really want to be on the moon, you need to create atmospheres that people can live in where they're expelling carbon dioxide, they're breathing in oxygen. That, that is a cycle that has to be balanced. So how do you do that? If you could figure out how to do that on the moon, it would immediately be applicable to our architecture on this planet to make it ever more efficient than it was before. So, I mean, that's part of the interest for me is to take on such a, such a messy, complicated design problem like that and, and then see what the application to the everyday project is. I was reading about your design philosophy um, in preparation for this interview, and uh, it's true. It, it, this is your design philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, I think that one of my favorite essays is by um, Igor Stravinsky, who gave a series of lectures at Harvard, and he talked about the beauty of constraints and this idea of the terror of the white piece of paper, the blank sheet of paper, and how it was a kind of creative paralysis for him. And that if he started placing constraints upon himself, this is a concerto, this is going to feature a violin, I have a performer in mind, I know what you know, their artistic ideas are, that suddenly everything comes flowing out of you. And I just think that that's my version of design, which is that you pile the constraints one on top of each other, and actually what you get then as a result, end result is a much more novel work of architecture, work of design than you would have had if you had complete freedom. Yeah, I was just envisioning some of these amazing buildings that are, you know, beautiful, but maybe not functional and, uh, you know, a product of that. So um, to wrap up, let's hear your futuristic AI application and uh, the sky's the limit here. <laughs> I did not know this question was coming, so I'm going to have to reflect on it. You know, one thing, it's maybe not so futuristic, it's very pragmatic in near term, but one of the biggest challenges to designing sustainably right now is to have a site in the world and find a way to build it that doesn't rely on, you know, shipping things from halfway around the globe to realize it, where the invisible footprint of your building spans continents, right? If it's just built in one place. And if there was a way in which AI could organize the material, literally the carbon around you, you know, that if you're building a building in Vermont, you know there's Vermont marble or something, but like, could you conceive of using AI the absolute smallest footprint to create, necessary to create your building, that it could automate and really express multiple different ways in which you could do that? I think that's an aesthetic proposition. 
the history of architecture is people making use of materials immediately around them, right? And that is where um, cultural identity and art history and all these other things are derived from. And we have, modernism has pushed us completely away from that because you can get anything from anywhere in the world. And I think a radical form of a new climate aesthetic would be if AI could reduce that footprint back down to something that is miles away from where you're building. I love that. I can see that. I think that's great. <laughs> Thanks so much for um, taking your time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. All right, this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.